welcome back to the Vela News Podcast. Our march toward the Tour de France continues. I am Fred Dreyer in the Vela News headquarters for, I believe this may be the final recording of the Vela News Podcast from this location. On the other line, Andrew Hood, just a couple days from leaving for the tour. Andy, how uh, you took a little, uh, little pre-tour trip. Where'd you go this past weekend? Hi, Fred. How are you doing here? It's still snowing in Colorado. I had to uh, search out some sand and sun, little uh, pre-tour escape away, found a place, one of the last places on the European Mediterranean coast that do not have hotels, that are not overdrawn, swarmed by German tourists. So had a great uh, couple of days on the beach, man. Couldn't even get a, couldn't even get a phone signal. How good was that? Shh, don't tell anyone. Don't, uh, don't reveal your secrets for where this uh, untouched, undisturbed uh, stretch of Spanish coastline is. I, I, it's just going to make the, the listeners have to follow you on Instagram to get some uh, clues to where you were. But it sounds very nice. Uh, my wife and I, we took a trip to uh, Salida, Colorado, a place where we got married. Um, and on our way back, we got snowed on. Because somehow, Andy Hood, it's late June and it's still snowing in Colorado. Um, get your skis, come to Colorado. We can hit some fresh pow. Yeah, it sounds like it must be some great uh, white water this year. Man, I miss that, that Colorado uh, kayaking scene. It's always good fun out there. <laughs> yeah, those people drink a lot of beer. <laughs> <laughs> we're, like I said at the top of the show, we're marching towards the Tour de France. We're uh, less than two weeks away from the start. And our coverage and our insight and analysis of this year's Tour de France continues on the podcast with completely unvarnished hot takes about the riders who are going to win. Um, this week, we're going to talk about the uh, what happened at the Tour de Suisse, where Egan Bernal ripped everyone's faces off on those long climbs and had a good, good time trial. And a result that really sort of vaulted him to the top of the list of Tour de France contenders. Um, also, this coming weekend, we have the U.S. National Road Race Championships going on in Tennessee. And uh, I did an interview with our reigning U.S. Road Race Championship, uh, Johnny Brown, who won that la uh, race last year, the dramatic solo breakaway, as an under-23 rider to grab the pro crown. So we're going to talk to Johnny Brown about his big win last year, about the change, the impact that it had on his pro career, and just what it means to be U.S. road champion. So that's going to be the second part of the show. But before we get to that, Andy Hood, we had the Tour de Suisse wrap up this past week. Um, you know, another the second of the big warm-up races before the Tour de France, and Egan Bernal just mopped the floor with everyone. What do we make of Egan Bernal's big win at the Tour de Suisse? That's right, Fred. A huge win by Mr. Bernal. Uh, really just, I think, proving yet again that he can really withstand the pressure and the stress that comes with being a leader of a big team like Ineos. You know, you got to remember that uh, this is only his second season at the World Tour. He's only 22 years old. You kind of sometimes you forget he's been knocking around a few years at the pro Conti level, but he's still a very young rider. He's only ridden one Grand Tour last year's Tour de France was his debut. So, you know, he comes out of this Tour de Suisse with a pretty emphatic victory, even though uh, against, you could you could say, a pretty weak field, really. Fred, I mean, there weren't that many big tour hitters there. I mean, Garen Thomas crashed out, luckily not too seriously injured. There was a post uh, on Twitter a couple of days ago that he's back on the bike, a few stitches on his brow, but otherwise looks like Garen Thomas is good to go. But yeah, the big, big takeaway there, Bonal has the momentum coming out of the Tour de Suisse. But what do you think, Fred? I mean, how much does that mean compared to, say, 
Fuglesong coming out of the Dauphiné. Yeah, it's tough. I, you know, the Dauphiné didn't have the hardest course this year. It looked like this year's Tour de Suisse had some pretty punishing climbing days. And so, yeah, I mean, we would expect Egan Bernal to do well on that race. But, yeah, looking down this list, I mean, uh, fourth place, when you have, when Tease Benoud is your fourth place finisher, um, they, maybe it's the sign that it's not exactly the strongest lineup of contenders. That said, you know, he, look, Rowan Dennis gave him a, gave him a pretty good run for his money. He was, he lost some time in the big climbs. He had a good opening time trial and not so great second time trial. Patrick Conrad, he is strong. I mean, you look at the top 10, Salmon Spielak, he's won this race a bunch of times, but it, it okay, it adds, all right, looking further down the race. Uh, this was not the strongest lineup of Tour de Suisse contenders. That said, I have to think that Egan Bernal's win gives him the big boost of confidence heading into the Tour. But uh, above anything, I think it's his result in that time trial um, that should be giving him a big boost of confidence. Because I think a lot of us looked at that second time trial of the Tour de Suisse and thought, okay, this is where Egan Bernal is going to lose a lot of time. And he did it. I mean, he almost crashed, but he uh, he rode pretty pretty well. Let's see here. He is he top ten? Just uh, just eleventh. He was eleventh. The, the, the striking thing about that performance for me was he only lost about one second per kilometer to the reigning world time trial champion, uh, Mr. Rowan Dennis. You know, Rowan actually was the big favorite to win that stage and kind of really sling back into the lead and force Bernal to attack him again. Uh, I think Rowan Dennis lost a little bit of his time trial mojo by kind of going so deep to stay with Bernal in those uh, preceding stages. So, Big surprise winner there was Yves Lampert. I think that was probably one of his first, uh, I mean, for sure it had to be his first World Tour time trial win for him to see a, a classics guy uh, to win a short course, 19K, so pure power course there. So huge friend for Lampert. But, I mean, w- your takeaway there from Bernal is that amazing save going into that corner, kind of showing off some uh, you know mountain biking skills there, some top bike handling skills, and then really to really reveal that, you know, that's not a total chink in his armor, is it? I mean, a lot of these Colombian guys just bleed time against the clock. So if Bernal is being able to really def- defend well against the clock and limit his losses to, you know, one or, two cl- one or two seconds per kilometer, that really is a great performance for a Colombian climber. Yeah, that's my takeaway is that I think this vaults Bernal into the hot seat as as the favorite to win the tour. I don't know if it's like the heavy favorite to win the tour. I think he is. It's It slightly nudges him ahead of Jakob Fuglzong in the favorite position because there was so much climbing and because this year's tour has so much climbing. Um, you know, the, 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 the other storyline, and, and I wrote about this this past week, about how Chris Froome uh, being knocked out of the Tour de France because of the injury, it really does eliminate this tour from, there's no heavy duty favorite coming into this year's Tour de France. I think we can put Bernal and Fuglesang maybe a one and two, um, depending on how you look at it. But when you look down the list, there's so many other guys who are in contention, but really what the compelling story is that everyone has a fault. So Bernal is this amazing climber. He can time trial, but he's never had team leadership over three weeks. Um, Fuglesang is having the ride of his life this year. He's on impressive form. He has a very t- a very strong team 
but he's never really put it together for a three-week race. He's always had the one bad day. And then there's Garrett Thomas, Hoodie. And, you know, look, I think before he crashed out of the Tour de Suisse, he would be atop the list of favorites. But what's your take on Garrett Thomas missing out on this crucial block of racing right before the Tour de France? What impact is that going to have on him? Yeah, I think he'll really be missing the, the that kind of race speed intensity over those last four or five days of the Tour de Suisse that he missed out on because, of course, he crashed out before the race turned into the mountains. And uh, this year, you know, he raced, uh, you know, he's raced quite a few stage races. He came into the race, uh, you know, I think with about 20, 25 days in his legs. You know, not ideal really for a, a tour run-in. You want to get a full, hard nine, ten days of race speed into your legs going in before a race like the tour. That June window is always very important for these guys, just to kind of hone their form, make sure everything's working and clicking. You know, to have a crash, you know, to have a scare like that, it's just going to knock him off his game a little bit. And it seems like Garrett Thomas has been on the back foot a little bit this whole season, hasn't he? Kind of came in. A few, a few stutters early on in the season. Haven't really seen him really shine and really dominate. Like, I mean, last year he was just on a tear, right? He had, he had that Jacob Fuglesong spring last year. I mean, he was just ripping the legs off everyone throughout the whole year. And that's the kind of momentum that a rider typically would carry into the Tour de France. So I think Garrett Thomas is going to have to kind of go into this tour and prove himself quite early, not only against his rivals, but also against uh, Egon Bernal. It's going to be very interesting to see how the team handles that tug of war between those two guys because you know that Bernal is definitely going to be a protected rider as well as Garrett Thomas. And it'll be interesting. Last year, you know, we came out later that there was much more tension inside that Team Sky bus than they let on last year between Froome and Thomas. You know, we'll see what how uh, that situation plays out between Bernal and uh, and uh, Thomas. Yeah, and looking at Team Ineos's lineup for the tour, they already have it looks like finalized their tour lineup. So Egan Bernal and Garen Thomas as two leaders: Mikkel Kwiatkowski, Luke Rowe, Dylan Van Barla. Uh, Jonathan Castro Viejo, Walt Poles, and Kenny Elisandi. It's it's an interesting lineup for me. I thought they would have erred a little bit harder on the side of um, time trialists for that uh, for that team time trial. Although I, although I guess the team time trial isn't particularly long, but they have Castro Viejo and Rowe, and probably they'll rely on uh, Kwiatkowski and Thomas to really drive that. Um, interesting, Kenny Elisandi. I. I did not expect to see him on that list, but apparently, I, I mean, my guess it's because of all the climbing kilometers. They're like, let's give little Kenny a, uh, let's give, give him a chance to fly. I mean, he was so impressive at the Giro last year, riding in support of, of Froome. Um, anything stand out to you about this lineup from Team Ineos? You got to wonder if they included a, a little Kenny to, uh, you know, make sure the French fans wouldn't turn against the team uh, midway through the race, kind of like last year. There was, there, there was some bad uh, juju there between uh, Brailsford and uh, the UCI president and uh, the accusations that the French fans were against Froome. But yeah, Elisson's kind of a surprise pick. I was expecting maybe a little bit more brawn for the flats as well. But uh, he'll, he'll, be, he'll come in very handy in that last week. I mean, this, this tour, I believe, has six, maybe even seven climbs over 2,000 meters. You know, it's really setting it up for a Colombian to win this. Or, we'll get to this in a little bit, a French rider. We shall see. But, I mean, how huge would it be 
for Bernal to ride into that last weekend, we're really having chances to win the tour. Maybe even, you know, teeing off against uh, Nairo and Rigo and all these Colombian guys racing for the yellow jersey. I mean, I think the Colombians would just go absolutely gonzo with this. Yeah, I think that is the other big storyline hanging over this year's Tour de France, which is the potential for a Colombian victory. I mean, this is a cycling-crazed country that for generations has turned out really impressive Grand Tour uh, riders and has come close so many times but has never won the Tour de France. As much as we talk about, oh, is this the French year to finally win the Tour? You know, first French winner since Bernard Hinault, on and on and on. You know, the other storyline that I always think about is Colombia. I mean, it's like the, the Minnesota Vikings of the cycling world. It's this hotbed where people are insane for their sport, and yet they haven't been able to win the biggest race. And so, I mean, in, in the last decade, we had Rigoberto Uran, who was really... Uh, promoted as the next big guy. And then, of course, we had Nairo in 2013 with his podium finish. And now, uh, you know, you one, ha- one has to wonder if, A, Bernal is the guy to finally get them over the hump, but B, like what that would mean for Colombia to have Egan Bernal finally win. I mean, who do you talk with a lot of the journalists and the, you know, the, the throngs of people who come over every year to the Tour de France from Colombia What's their sentiment around this race? What do you think it would mean for Colombia to finally win the tour this year with Bernal? Yeah, you're right about that. I mean, the anticipation is huge right now for this for this tour inside Colombia. I was just talking to, chatting to a, a Colombian journalist friend of mine just online the other day. He was just saying how the expectations are sky high. They see Uran, Nairo, and Egon Bernal all capable of winning this tour. Um, the one guy that hasn't really done much this year, who I think could really go well, actually, is is Uran. He is uh, one of those kind of cagey, sneaky riders uh, who kind of always, I think, he'll be in the mix all the way into that third week. If he, you know, if he can avoid a crash like took him out last year, I think Uran will be a factor into this thing. And then Nairo, the big question with Nairo is, you know, does he have that mentality to win? I mean, that's kind of a crazy question to ask because he's won the Giro and the Vuelta, but. Um, you know, at the Tour de France, it always seemed like he was either following Sky's wheel, which is very hard to do, following Chris Froome's wheel. Um, and he, of course, came close to, uh, relatively close to winning a couple times, uh, closer than anybody really in, in the last, since the Froome's reign. Without Froome, Nairo should be the guy naturally to step up. But it's really the, the, the momentum and the excitement really is around Bernal. And I think back in Colombia, they would just go absolutely bonkers if one of these three guys could bring home Colombia's first win. Like you said, it's a huge sport down in Colombia. They've had this long history dating back to the 80s. Even before that, they've had all these different incarnations of teams and riders coming across from Colombia. And this would kind of really just be the crowning achievement of this whole kind of uh, third wave of Colombian riders that have come up really starting with Rigoberto Uran more than 10 years ago. But looking at the start list, I think there's only, only going to be about five or six Colombians in this year's tour. Um, a little bit lower, I think, than what the number was last couple of years or so. But, uh, yeah, I think it, it would just be absolutely massive. I mean, it'd be like that first time anyone wins the tour for their respective countries. I remember, uh, you know, when, when uh, Reese won it for the first time in Denmark, you know, the Champs-Élysées was just packed full of uh, crazed Den- Danish people. Uh, first time when uh, Carapaz, you know, wins the Giro, you know, all the, all the Ecuadorians came out of the woodwork there uh, last month in Italy. So if, if one of these guys can win, it would just be 
the hugest fiesta back in Colombia you can imagine. I think the other interesting element there is that uh, you know, in, in this last generation of Grand Tour racing where the Colombians have come so close with both Nairo and Rigo, um, they've come close by battling against Team Sky. And so, you know, Team Sky has been the team that has the best, that has, that has gotten the best of these Colombian stars. So how maybe it's fitting, maybe it's just uh, counterintuitive that the guy who could conceivably be the one to take him to the promise line would be riding for that team. It would be um, Colombians having to cheer potentially for the team that has been thwarting them over the last uh, five to ten years. The team that defeated Nairo is, is the team that finally takes one of their countrymen across the line. Yeah, good observation there. You're exactly right. I mean, even without Chris Froome, Ineos is going to be the strongest and deepest and most experienced team in the tour. So you're right. Put in a Colombian and you can still win. And I think they would probably get over that uh, disappointment pretty fast if, if, if Bernal can bring home the yellow jersey. There'll, there'll be a whole new uh, slew of uh, Ineos fans out there. You can yeah. guarantee that. Yeah, maybe they'd build a statue for David Brailsford somewhere in, uh, in Colombia. <laughs> <laughs> what, uh, I mean... You know, looking at this, uh, the, the depth of these also rants, and I, I liked what you pointed out in your story there, Fred, about how no one really has that perfect profile to win. You know, you got Dumoulin's out, Froome is out, there's a few other guys that aren't you know, being knocked around. Who, who do you see is kind of like the Smokey? Who do you see the guy that can kind of sneak up on people and, and maybe win this thing without creating a lot of pre-race hype? Oh, Rui Costa, for sure. <laughs> Just joking. Not a, not a lot of buzz right there. <laughs> um, I think that uh, Stephen Kreuzwick could be a smoky. I think that if there was a dynamic day in which there's maybe a momentary lull in concentration and a team lets a breakaway go, I think Kreuzwick could be a guy to get an early advantage and hold it through the end. Um, I don't see Adam Yates as that rider. And, you know... I, we can get to the French later, but I think I don't see the French as that as as fitting that role because there's going to be a lot of buzz around them. So I think that that Grant, all the contenders will be watching Thibaut Pinot and and Roman Bardet. Um, Enric Moss is still a little, a little young. So when I think of a true Smokey, I think of someone who, you know, who's going to be a spoiler and who people aren't going to, a real second tier contender. So I guess. Yeah, I, I, Stephen Kreuzwick is, I see him as a top contender, but sort of at the back half of that group. I think everyone's going to keep their eye on Jakob Fuglesang. Everyone's going to keep their eye on Bernal. But maybe there's a scenario in which Kreuzwick goes on a long breakaway and um, uh, upsets people. But I don't know. That's the beauty of this race, and that's why I wrote in this column, I can't wait to w watch this year's Tour de France because for the first time since really like Cadell Evans, we don't have a true favorite who you could look at on paper and just say, well, he's just stronger than everyone else. Um, Odie, you wrote about it this past week, but the French have really high hopes this year. Uh, Thibaut Pinot, Roman Bardet, these guys have been the punching bag of Team Ineos for the last four or five years, and yet Chris Froome missing the tour, it seems like has... Has the Frenchies have it raising their expectations? What did you tell me? There was like a Lequipe story potentially saying now or never. Yeah, in fact, it made the front page of Lequipe. Uh, cycling really hits the front page in Lequipe these days outside the Tour de France. You know, there's just so football crazy now in France. Um, 
But yeah, now or never, this year or never, basically was the headline. It said uh, Bardet or Pinot. And I think it's it's a pretty good call, really, that the French are set up really in their best position to possibly win their first Tour de France since the Badger lasted it back in 1985. Were you still in diapers, Fred, in 1985? Uh, I mean, I was in diapers up until I was 15 years old. So, um, <laughs> yeah, you know, still was wearing them then. No, I, I, I don't know. I'll check with my mom. I would have been four years old then. So I would have been... <laughs> you might have still been in diapers, yeah. actually, yeah. <laughs> but... Uh, but you know the French have had you know a couple of good podium rides over the last uh, in that in that interim, but never really you know Richie Verank, Christophe Moreau, some of these guys came through back in the dirty old days, but none of them really really could actually deliver the win. They always ran into a guy Miguel Landerain, then there was that guy from Texas, kind of just shattered the hearts of the French fans, and they're just used to being uh, not winning, right? They're just used to, you know, cheering for their, the, the best Frenchman is always kind of a, a separate category in the tour. But I think this year the mindset's going to change realistically with a chance. I think either one of those guys could potentially win. I think the big problem, I think, for both of them will be these time trials, and the team time trial could be kind of a, a tough challenge for both of those teams. Won't really have the best team time trial lineups but like you said, I think the team time trial is about 25K. But still, you know, you don't want to be losing a minute or so to your direct rivals right in that first week. You get another split in the race, maybe some sort of uh, crash in the bunch, and then you're two or three minutes off the back going into the mountains. That would kind of change the, 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 you know, the dynamics for those guys. But if they could stay upright, if they can stay close in these time trials and go into the Pyrenees close, you know, lightning could strike. Yeah, I'm looking at Groupama FDJ, their team, um, uh, the team of Thibaut Pino. I mean, he has Stefan Kung. Stefan Kung is a very good time trialist. They brought him very over. Um, he bolsters that squad. Steve Morabito, he's been around forever. But look at the climbing domestiques, David Gaudu, uh, Sebastian Reichenbach. I mean, these are guys who potentially could be making it into some of these final groups on the road to help Thibaut Pino out, or at the very least to help soften up that group, which is just something we haven't been able to see in the uh, in the Ineos era. Uh, looking at Asha Duzer Le Mondial, I mean, it's just, it doesn't have quite the same level. Matthias Frank, he's obviously very experienced. Tony Galopan, good all-arounder. Pierre Latour, young up-and-comer, Oliver Nason, but they don't have, they don't have a big engine, I feel like, for that uh, team time trial. So I could realistically see Roman Bardet losing a lot of time in that team time trial. Um, yeah, So I don't know if it's going to be Bardet's year. I mean, a lot of it's just going to come down to how explosive he is on these big climbing stages. Um, Pino, I feel like, is a little more enticing to me um, because of the team and because a lot of times we've seen Thibaut Pino do the Giro. And knowing that he's rested himself and, and this is a climb-heavy tour... Um, maybe, maybe it's old Tebow's year. What would, what would, well, the question for you, what would, what would the French journos be doing? What's going to be going on in France? Should there be a French champion? Well, they would lose all sense of objectivity. You can, you can certainly bet on that. Um, yeah, I interviewed, uh, Bardet a year or two ago at one of the spring training camps, uh, winter training camps. And, and I asked him, you know, what would it be like if a Frenchman won the tour? And he goes, he goes, if a Frenchman did win the tour, you probably could only win it once because he said it would, you would be such a huge celebrity that he said it would almost be impossible to be able to remain a serious professional uh, in the aftermath of winning the tour. 
because it's been so long since they've won. Of course, it's the French race. They invented the Grand Tours. The French dominated the, the, the race up until well in well past World War II. But it's been just so long since the 80s, really. I mean, the 80s, they continue to dominate the, the tour all the way into the 1980s. And since then, the French cycling has just struggled against the internationalization of the sport. And Bardet uh, was just saying that it would just be an absolutely huge party both for the French fans and for that rider, whoever wins, because they'd be going to talk show, chat shows, you know, endless stream of interviews, all these endorsement deals, kind of like probably Garrett Thomas went through last year after he won. You know, he, he said it took him several months to kind of buckle down and get serious to be a serious rider again. But just, um, you know, imagine that on a much larger scale across fans. I have to say, though, the one guy, the one smoky guy that no one has ever talked about in this Tour de France, I, the guy that kind of pops up, you know, on the edge of the radar for me is another Frenchman, Julian Alaphilippe. Oh. You know, what about Alaphilippe? You know, I have to say, it was my colleague, James Stark, who uh, kind of brought this up. That we were having a chat the other day, uh, who, who, who did mention Alaphilippe's name. And ever since he said that, I've been looking at Alaphilippe. And man, he, he's the guy that has had this kind of amazing spring run, right? I mean, he had all those great one days, you know, he's been close in the stage races. Of course, he's only ridden three grand tours, I think is in his history, never even finished close to the top 30, you know, in the top 30s, 40s, I think, you know, he's never really been a grand tour contender, but isn't he kind of that guy that could fit that profile? Just a guy who could kind of get away maybe one day and when it's like, ah, the Philippe, he's just hunting for stages. He's just going for the King of Mountain Jersey again. Um, so I think, maybe that's kind of one of those scenarios where a guy like that could just get away, get a five-minute lead, and suddenly, you know, he's not racing for the King of the Mountain jersey. He's racing for the yellow jersey. I like that. I like that a lot. Uh, Philippe. you know, I think, yeah, normally you'd look on paper and say, well, he's not that style of rider. He's not a Grand Tour champion. Or if he's going to be, he's still a few years away from that. We have seen him win stage races. But Grand Tours at this point when he's been focusing on these one-day races now – but you're right. That's the beauty of the tour. And the beauty of a tour without a bona fide favorite is that crazy stuff like this can happen. I mean, there could be a scenario in which they give Alaphilippe a long list because he's not Bernal, because he's not Garrett Thomas. And then all of a sudden, he has to try and defend that lead and he pulls it out. I mean, what year was it when Thomas Vokler held the lead until it was the 2011? I mean, he held the lead until the third week of the Tour de France. And I don't think anyone ever thought him to be a rider capable uh, of winning the Tour. Now, Hoodie, when you were talking about the Smokey that you had on your list, I thought you were talking about uh, none other than the world champion himself, Alejandro Valverde, who just this past week did win a stage race in France, La Route. De Ossetani, probably totally butchering the pronunciation of that, but Valverde did win the race. He won the opening stage, held on. Um, seeing photos of him online, he looked quite gaunt. <laughs> That's the word I think that everyone used to describe <laughs> Grandpa Valverde. Grandpa Valverde looking very thin, very skinny. Uh, Tour skinny, indeed. What do you make of a Valverde run at uh, the Tour de France? Yeah, I don't. I don't see Valverde kind of being that smoky rider in this tour. Uh, he's already publicly said, at least, that he's not racing for GC. That he's going to back uh, the team effort. He's going to try to win a stage one day. But uh, you know, he, he finished on the tour podium. You know, years ago, more than ten years ago. I think he wants to 
come out of the tour with something. And for him, that means a stage win. And he's the kind of one of those kind of riders that does not do well at altitude. Um, as we said earlier, there's quite a few days that go above 2,000 meters. Remember a few years ago at the Giro, that kind of cost Contador a chance to win that Giro because we did have a couple of big stages over these high-altitude mountains, and he really suffered and lost a lot of time the year that um, Dumoulin won. So, yeah, I mean – there could be some, you know, Smokies, you know, my kind of uh, wildcard pick earlier this spring was Adam Yates. I think Adam Yates could have a pretty good tour. It's kind of one of those years where a guy who's been kind of knocking around, I mean, he's been top 10. He's won a lot of stage races. He's actually had very good form this whole year. Remy lost the, the Terreno by one or two seconds in the last day time trial. He kind of was leading, going well, and the Dauphiné pulled out ill on the last day or second to last day. He's been going very well all spring. And then, you know, maybe a guy like Landa. You know, maybe the stars will align. Things will happen right for Landa. I mean, he, he is that kind of rider that is just can do those kinds of crazy things every once in a while. You know, he's been on a few podiums in the Grand Tour, so he has his capability to go the distance. You know, maybe if he stays upright, maybe if he doesn't lose a lot of time in those time trials like he did at the Giro that really just handicapped him at the Giro last month. He just lost so much time that he wasn't really even a factor, and that opened the door for Carapaz to win the Giro. So, but maybe Landa, you know, last year he was seventh. People kind of forget he was seventh last year when he really injured his back. You know, he crashed in that uh, cobblestone stage, went out hard. So, you know, I think there's a lot of scenarios here. You know, what's going to happen? What's going to happen is Enios will smash the race. They'll smother everyone. They'll have Thomas up the road and they'll have Bernal up the road. And it'll be just as boring as if Chris Froome was there. But we're hoping that it's a good race. We hope it's a good race, right, yeah, Fred? Well, we hope it. I mean, we have mentioned basically every rider in the race is a potential contender up to this point. So I think Richie that, Port, yeah, Richie Port could win. I think that fact alone uh, just sheds light on how unpredictable things are at this point in the race. I mean, Chris Froome, we wish him the best of luck with his recovery, but his absence really has opened the door for, at the very least, there to be lots of fun speculation about who can win this year's Tour de France. So, Hoodie, we're going to throw to this interview with Johnny Brown now, but uh, the next time we catch up with you, it'll be right before the Tour de France. We're going to make our bold predictions of who is going to win. So, for Andrew Hood, thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, Let's hear from Johnny Brown, who's going to take us out of the podcast. Okay, Fred Dreyer here. We are rocking and rolling with the Velonews podcast. I'm sitting in a cafe right now in the middle of Ghent, Belgium, the Peddler de Flanders, which is a nice bike cafe here in Belgium. And I am really psyched to be joined by the man sitting across from me. It's Johnny Brown, our reigning U.S. national road champion. Johnny, it's uh, kind of a chilly April day out in Ghent. What, What are you doing out here? What's going on with your life in Belgium? Yeah, so I've my wife and I have decided to base ourselves uh, full time here in Belgium, and but it's just another classic Belgium day. You gotta love it. What, what was your ride like today? Um, I went to, to one of the local group rides on the canal. So we did. Um, it was a hundred k and in three hours, uh, just back and forth, uh, four times, and 
It was a great little ride, though. Yeah, that's what I love about Ghent over here. There's a lot of riding, a lot of cool loops, and then there's, yeah, this canal ride, <laughs> which I've never been on it, but from what people have told me, it's a pretty fast and furious group ride where everyone meets. It's like it's like a throwdown, like a fight. Everyone meets Yeah. 9 a.m. <laughs> 9 a.m. every day. <laughs> bridge of the canal, and then you just go hammer each other, right? Yeah, pretty much. And it's pretty cool because um, on most days... During the week, you'll have a lot of other pros show up. Uh, you'll have quick step guys or lotto guys. And a couple of times I've seen some Astana people. So it's it's pretty cool. Awesome, man. Well, you know, listeners are probably going to be listening to this a little bit later in the year. We're here in the middle of the classic season, but uh, this might be not, you're not getting listened until to June. Because, Johnny, the reason why I want to have you on the podcast is we have the U.S. National Road Championships coming up here. And you are the reigning U.S. National Road Champion. And, and as is what happens every now and again, we have a U23 rider who wins the elite race. Um, you won it last year in uh, Knoxville, and it was a thrilling race. You know, first question for you, when you think back to that day and that big win, what are the scenes and the memories that pop into your head from that day? Yeah, even to this point, every time I put on the jersey is uh, an un- unbelievable moment for me. And when I go back and in my mind and I think the race over, just winning the race in in my home state, in the town that I was living in, um, it was one of the most special moments for me. And it was one of my first races that I did with my brother as well. So that was uh, another moment that I'll cherish forever. And it was also great because my wife was there and her dad and my family and having all these loved ones around you winning the biggest race I've ever won was, it was huge for me. And it'll be a memory that I'll take for, take with me forever. Well, of course, we had the race report up on the website afterwards, but uh, give us a little play-by-play. Like, what, wh- how, did you, how did you win this race? Take us inside the victory. Yeah, so it, it was definitely raced really hard right from the beginning. And weather, I would say, played a little bit of a role. I mean, you have Tennessee humidity and it, it's something of itself right there. And um, ultimately, I got in a break with, three other guys and then we we were off for most of the race um and at one point actually the field didn't really like like the breakaway and it was my brother and his teammates chasing us down trying to bring us back and they're the ones that really exploded it from behind and in reality it actually helped me in the long run even though in the short term you're looking over and you're seeing your brother chase you down you're like what are you doing man but uh yeah, because then once they stopped, the the race behind was blown blown apart, and everyone was already pretty cooked. And then the break, we kept working really well together, and it was me, um, Robin Carpenter, Gavin Mannion, and Jacob Rathy. And going into, um, we had a lap and a half to go, and we were going up Sherrod Hill. Gavin went really hard that that lap up the climb, and I was on the point of breaking up the climb, and I was fortunate enough that being that I lived in town, I I know the climb and I know how hard it is and you know exactly how long you have left. Um, and right at the point that I was about breaking, I kept telling myself, it gets flat in a second, it gets flat in a second, just keep pushing. And it goes down for, it feels like nothing in the moment. It really is not much, but that three seconds that it, it gets easier and then it gets really steep for the final 10 seconds or so. And even that point it was 
you're almost at the top. Just just keep going as hard as you can and just recover on the bottom. And once we reached the top that lap, I wasn't the only one that was hurting that bad because we, we came over the top and we, none of us pedaled all the way down the descent until we took the left-hand turn for the feed zone. And I mean, from that point, it's like 2K from the top of the climb. Um, and it was clear Gavin had went so hard up the climb that everyone was hurting really bad at that point. So I kind of just took a leap and was, it was one of those, if I'm hurting, everyone's hurting. And I put an attack and then up this slight little uphill and they all just kind of looked at each other. Like I, I think they were thinking, well, he's kind of crazy. We still have almost 30 kilometers to go. There's no way he can, can hold us off. And at that point, once I went solo, in my mind, I wasn't thinking of the wind almost. It was, this is great exposure for me, and this has been a really great race. And even if they catch me and I get fourth, I'm going to be ecstatic with that because that's huge. I mean, that that's going to be a really big result for me. And then going through the start-finish and having all the local people that I know and cheering for you and really believing in you and really gives you strength and and the once I hit Sherrod Hill it was I they came over the radio saying my time gap and it was almost like oh maybe I can hold him off up this climb but I don't know because Gavin clearly showed he was really strong the the lap before and it's one of those climbs you can have a minute at the bottom but if the group behind you is going pretty good like they can close that minute pretty quick up the climb but I hit the bottom and it was the same seeing familiar faces on the climb and people that I've grown up racing with cheering you on and truly believing in you at that point gives you a motivation inside. And once I reached the top of the climb and realizing that I actually hadn't lost any time to the, the group behind me, at that point I started believing some that, okay, maybe I can I can actually do this. and then you get on a really open highway for for a bit and that's the same i'm one against three so it was i really have to push at this point and i don't know because these these three behind me are some of america's best and um yeah but then at at one point once i hit coming off the highway it's probably 5k to go 6k to go and even at that point in my mind i i think i had a minute at that point um I still didn't believe it. And even you're still having those doubts. Those three behind me are much quicker than me me right now. And Gavin is really fast. And I know Robin is really fast. Um, yeah, and that even that whole period from 5K until 1K to go, I still had it in my mind. And then with about 800 meters to go, you take this right-hand turn up a really steep climb. And even up that, I'm almost to the finish. And I look behind and you have this thought that they're going to be right behind you. And I had a minute going into this climb that's like 200 meters, and I sprinted as hard as I could because I believed that they were still going to catch me and that I wasn't going to win the race. Um, and then I took the, the final turn, and that's when it finally sunk in that you're actually going to win the national championship um, in your home state, in the town that you live in. Um, and it... It starts sinking in a bit as you start crossing the line, but it definitely took days for it to, to finally realize that I was the new national champion of the U.S. and the youngest person ever to, to put the jersey on. And I still, 
yeah, to this day, I'm grateful and, and proud to, to put the jersey on. One of the things that stands out about that story, Johnny, is how many veteran moves you made through that winning ride. Um, and like you said, you are the youngest man to win the national champion jersey. You were the youngest guy in that breakaway racing against some pretty experienced riders. Yet you had the presence of mind to A, know that, you know, the hill doesn't go on forever. Mentally, you can hang on. B, if I am blown and feeling this tired, that means everyone is tired too. I think that's a common mistake that a lot of racers don't know, which is that like, if you're tired, then that ch- chances are that means everyone else is tired too. And then the experience to be able to, um, you know, just power through those last kilometers when you know the the, the body's probably telling you to stop, you know, you're only 21. Where's this experience coming from? Like, you know, you've been racing for a long time. Where do you think that some of the the knowledge and experience that helped you win this race, where do you think that came from? Yeah, I, I've been around bike racing my whole life. So my dad um, raced professional as well. And then he started racing masters later in life once I, I came around. So from birth, I've been around racing and it's, something I've always known um and then watching my older brother race and so Nate's six years older than me and so I he's in a a different world than I always was in the cycling scene so I was always looking up to him and seeing mistakes he made and things like that um and it definitely helped me through my process um so that's I've been definitely fortunate in that way to have these experiences um, early in life and always be around cycling and having a mentor like my brother and my dad uh, teach me the ways of racing. So, Johnny, how did this victory change your career trajectory? What opportunities opened for you after the big win? Yeah, it was definitely... um, a big change for me just in confidence wise in general. Um, I had been searching for, for a win all year and it happened to come at that point. And that was honestly one of the, the best points that it could come at. And cause now I get to wear the Jersey for a whole year. Um, but I think now for, for me, for the next years and even this year, searching for a pro contract after my time ends as a U23, it definitely helps wearing the jersey now because these directors see it in the peloton and then they realize, okay, this guy has won something big already. Um, And it helps get conversations started. So this is your final year in the U23 ranks. You obviously have ambitions of making it to the world tour. What do you feel like you need to accomplish this year to help you get there? Yeah, I think the biggest thing for me is just keep growing and and keep learning um, and taking every race as a learning experience, but also be fighting for that opportunity. And um, when when it arises, definitely seizing it like nationals and... And just, yeah, I mean, ultimately, I think I just have to keep growing as a young cyclist, but keep fighting for results. 
Yeah, that's really interesting, John. You know, in the the feature profile Dane Cash wrote about you, he talked about how, you know, some of the directors said that you were not you were not the most naturally strong rider they had ever seen, but your ability to read a race, pick up on a race, see your opportunities and um, exploit those was something that really set you apart. Um, other than nationals, I'm curious if you have any uh, any examples of that. I mean, we talked about earlier about your experience at U23 Paris-Roubaix. It seemed like that specifically was a race where all of your experiences added up to being strong, but also being smart at the right time. Yeah, definitely. Roubaix was um, my first breakthrough for me last year. And I I came away with seventh and on paper it was not the best clearly because you're still not in the top five but for me inside it was okay I'm I'm on the the front end of a race again and the real confidence actually came for me a couple weeks later at Tour de Beauce uh, 2.2 in Canada um it was kind of the same going for me last year, going into races, I never really had set goals. Like this is the race. I want to get a result. It was always going in, taking as a learning experience, but wanting to seize that opportunity if it comes. Um, in the first stage of both, I could already tell, okay, I'm really strong at this point of the year. And the first stage, and it was a pretty much a pure sprinting stage. I got 15th. Um, which was nothing that great, but inside I realized, okay, I can really do something in this race. Um, and then in, it was stage 2B after the time trial, I got in the breakaway and then it came down to, to me and one other rider. Um, and it finished up a, a tough little 2K steep climb. Um, and it came down to two of us drag racing and he, he beat me that day, but I, I still got second. And for me, that was, I was very disappointed, but at the same time, 20 minutes later, once that disappointment goes, you realize, okay, I just got second out of 2.2. Um, and I've never had that before. So push this disappointment aside, I'm on the podium. This is huge for me. This is really big. And then even the next two days um, in the crit, I solo bridged to the breakaway and got fifth that day. And that was another big one for me. And it was like, okay, clearly I've been on the front end of this race all week. And then even the last day, which is always a lot of times people talk about it both. It's like, it all comes down to that last day. And sometimes only 40 guys finish that last day. And it was the same the first time up the, we do circuits. So the first time up the, the climb, a breakaway was going and they had probably 20 seconds, 30 seconds. And I attacked and, and bridged up to the breakaway. And even just uh, in the moment to bridge up 30 seconds on this climb, in my mind, it was like, okay, normally I, I just can't do that in a race. I can't just be like, okay, I want to be in that breakaway and, and attack and go for it. Um, and it was the same. So that breakaway stayed away all day and I got six that day. And that for me was the biggest week of learning and growing and getting results that I had ever had. And I think that contributes a lot to my nationals win as well, because I showed that I had, I had a lot of fitness at that point and confidence wise inside. I was confident of what, what had been happening over the last three weeks. And for me, that confidence though, was going into nationals and looking for a top 10. That was, that was my goal going into the race. It shows though, 
seize the opportunity when it comes in cycling and, and the opportunity arose during nationals and I went for it. Well, that's some great uh, words of advice, uh, words of advice there, Johnny, you know, know when you're on good form and use it wisely and yeah, see the most you can make of it. Well, Johnny, we're going to be watching you as we head into the national championships. Uh, and I appreciate you making some time for me here in Ghent, um, even though we're a few months away. Best of luck to you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs>